You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. I know that I've told you guys this before, but I appreciate when our student ministry band plays and and leads us in worship. Um, It's an encouragement to, to see them and watch them and um, it's glad, I'm glad to know that God's doing something in their hearts. Um, that's a good thing. So, so Colton and I had a, had a discussion about a week and a half ago. There you are. And um, we, I'm going to get this for a reason, but we had, we had a little discussion about a week and a half ago, and, and um, we were at the the aim was um, to do something a little different this morning than what we just experienced. And you go, well, what in the world could be different? Well, um, I don't know exactly what was going on, but Colton came downstairs into the office area, and he was wearing a choir robe. Now, I I don't know what that tells you um, or what it might signify. Uh, One of the things that I know we're not doing is we're not really moving back to choir robes for the choir. I figured that would get a couple amens. Um, But I I actually encouraged Colton to wear a choir robe this morning. And and then we talked about, you know, what what do you wear under a choir robe? And so there was a little discussion about that. We won't talk about all the details of that, um, but it was. But the question was, why wear a choir robe at all? What was the? What's the reason that somebody would wear a choir robe? And what would? Why would choirs even do that? Um, so that, so I came up with a, a, a very short list of of reasons to wear a choir robe. All right, and so part of it was uniformity. Everybody up here looking the same, um, not, having, not having this like crazy plaid next to crazy flowers all, all there to, to drive everybody that's out here looking crazy. So, um, so uniformity might be part of it. Unity, it just kind of displays unity. That may be a, a part of it. Um, I know that during certain times of the year and even in here in, on certain days, that choir robes are great for heat to keep heat in. They're definitely not for keeping heat out. And so, um, so heat may be another part of it. Um, fourth one I came up with was one that, and see, we don't have a modesty rail, so, um, so modesty may be a part of that. Because every once in a while, a choir sits down, and, and if, if dresses aren't quite long enough, or, or they're not pants and everything, choir ropes provided modesty. And I've been in places where you're like, hey, we should wear choir robes. And so, so that, I'm not suggesting that, Wayne. So don't, you can just tell choir to, to be careful. And so, um, so modesty may have been part of that. And then the last, last piece of this was tradition. Just wearing it because it's traditional. And so there are a lot of reasons to, to wear choir robes. And, and, and we even talked about what you wear under a choir robe because Wearing, wearing something under a choir robe, you know, you can wear just about anything. And technically, you can wear nothing. And, but so, so there's all kinds of things you can wear under a choir robe. When I graduated high school, there was a guy in my graduating class who was valedictorian, and he was given certain instructions about what to wear 
under his graduation gown. And so I, I really don't know what was under his graduation gown. But they said, this is what we want you to wear. We want you to wear dress shoes. Don't wear flip-flops. Don't wear tennis shoes. This was Florida. So, you know, anything could go in Florida. And, and he came in wearing army boots. And the whole class was like, really, dude? You were given some specific instructions about what to wear with your graduation gown, your valedictorian, and you're wearing army boots. And it had nothing to do with being in the army. He just wanted to wear army boots. I was like, come on. So, so the, the question was, what, why wear robes? And, 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 and really, when you think about choir robes, and not so much the graduation gown, but when you wear a choir robe, what does it mean? And, and what is important? Uh, I guess the question comes up is, what is the Lord most interested in? Is he interested in the choir looking all the same? Is that important? What's he really interested in? This is what it says, and, and you're going you're gonna to say, well, that's a familiar verse. I get that. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we say, well, okay, well, so the, the heart is more important. So really, it doesn't matter what that choir robe looks like. In my last church, the choir robes, now I got there post-choir robe period, Okay. And, and rightfully, I'm thankful for that because the choir robes at that church were a baby blue and a light pink. I didn't choose them. I, didn't, I really didn't even have to look at them. They were boxed by the time I got there. But if you notice in this particular passage, nestled in the middle of this, and it really, this, is, this passage is nestled in the middle of a, a section of Scripture in Samuel's quest to anoint a new king for Israel. You know, Saul had been rejected as king, and he's, Samuel's looking for a king, and Jesse brings his first son, and then brings the next six, and, and they are all rejected by God. Not rejected in the sense of, I don't like you, I'm bringing my wrath on you, rejection. Just that you are not the one that's going to be king over Israel. And so they bring and they go get the, the, the last, the, the youngest son, David, who's out tending the field. He's a shepherd boy, and he ends up being the one who is anointed to be successor to Saul. And this is what it says, the testimony of his life. And you, if you know anything about David's life, David's life was riddled with things that were not pleasing to God. He committed adultery. Remember, he looked at Bathsheba on top of the roof, rooftop and said, I want her. She's hot. He may not have said it exactly like that, but it ended up kind of like that, didn't it? And so, so David failed there. David was a man who was known by, by his warring. I mean, he was in charge of mighty warriors and they would go to battle and he had killed people, which is one of the reasons that he was not permitted to build the temple. So he gathered things together so Solomon could build the temple. So David's past was a little sordid, but this is what it says in Acts 13, 22. He said, after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Talk about Saul, now moving to David. 
He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now, what does that communicate to you? I'm hoping that it communicates that seeking out the heart of God is important. And it's important to God. You see, you can serve God in a bunch of different ways and your heart not be centered on God. There are a lot of ways to apply this idea of being involved in church and it still not be pleasing to God. So we asked the question, and it's for this week as well as it was for last week, what is the condition of your heart? So what is the condition of your heart? As we look through the, this, this book of Malachi, this last prophecy in the Old Testament, that's the question that keeps coming up because it, everything that is brought up in these eight sarcastic questions through the book of Malachi have to do with, with what is the heart of the people that Malachi is even speaking to. And so we end up with that question. And when we get to Malachi 1.1, It says this, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So Malachi being that that name that means messenger. He's coming with an oracle from the Lord, the word of the Lord. And it means that he has a burden that he's sharing with this people. And we learned last week that when Malachi was doing this, it was really in between um, Nehemiah 10 and Nehemiah 13. So that was the, the context of this. And in Nehemiah 10, we saw this, this great pledge on the, on the part of the Israelite people that had returned and rebuilt the wall and built the gates back up and it kind of been secured around Jerusalem. And, and they pledged their life and their commitment to God. And then we see that the Nehemiah left for a bit. And then when he came back, what he found was that things were chaotic that they weren't at all pleasing to God. And so Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah goes ballistic on these guys. And he just kind of comes in and says, you didn't measure up. You didn't follow through with the pledge that you pledged when we came back and rebuilt all this stuff and celebrated what God had done. You didn't follow through. It was this, you came to the altar and you prayed and you committed, but then you walked away and forgot what you did here. That's what Nehemiah found when he went back. And so he walks in and and he does several things. He he says he cursed and, and, and tore up the guys really that had intermarried. And he said he even pulled out their hair. I mean, he did he did lots when he went in. He shut the gates of the temple. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we get into our passage this morning. Essentially, Israel had put on choir robes. And they were doing worship just like every other week. And it made no difference because their heart was not there. The choir robe looked good, but there was no heart on the inside. What was underneath the choir robe was hollow. And didn't mean anything. Malachi 1.2 says, and this is God's declaration, and then the attitude that we read about last week, 
I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? We said, okay, so God loved us this way. He chose Israel. He protected Israel. He attended Israel and he redeemed Israel. Look at Vaughn, you finding them? If you just click the right arrow, there you go. Chose Israel, protected Israel, attended Israel, and redeemed Israel. We could go back to David and look at Psalm 23, and we could see these pieces in Psalm 23, where the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, and then he leads, and he anoints, and he protects, and he does all those things. But, but when we look at that, we say, oh, well, that's for David. But if you go to Nehemiah chapter 9, what you read about going into that, that pledge idea is you have this reading of a history of Israel. That you protected us as we left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. As you kept us in the wilderness and you taught us how we are to live our lives. And then when we were taken and when we disobeyed you, you brought people to correct us. And when we really disobeyed and kept going, you sent us into exile. And then you brought us back and you helped us rebuild the walls. You did all those things. You did these things for the nation, the corporate piece of this. You chose us, you protected us, you attended us, and you redeemed us as a people. And yet Israel was pushing back on God and asking the question. And it's the question that we often ask, what do we expect from God? It's that idea of setting the standard for God to measure up. And we learned last week that that is a position or a posture of pride and arrogance. We look at God and say, God, you are not doing everything that I expect out of you then what we're doing is we're saying, God, you are not God, we are God. And we'll tell you what to do and what, to, what we should expect. When we get to Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, we're going to go a little further into this. And we're going to understand that what their, what their worship looked like. It wasn't just about this love relationship, although that is the foundational piece for all of this. It's what they were doing on a regular basis before God that signified that their hearts were not there. That they weren't engaged in their hearts. They were engaged just in their presence. And so Malachi 1.6 says this, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. Now we're going to stop right there because uh, we'll get into the next part. But that next section of verse 6 is going to start to give us a glimpse of what they were doing. And so... Basically, what is happening here in this is God is setting something up. He says, first of all, he loves them. But then if, if he loves them, he's also saying, hey, am I not father? And if nothing else, am I not master? Then this is the way you ought to treat me. You ought to, you ought to treat me with honor, which if we go back to the commandments, it's that idea of honoring your father and your mother. He says, you're, you're not doing that. 
And you're, you're not even respecting me as if I were the employer and you were the employee, or I was the master and you were the slave. You're not even going so far to do that. And you know, if you've had a job for any length of time and you're not particularly fa- um, fond of your job, you walk into that and you say, I'll do what I have to do and my boss will be pleased, but I'm not doing it be- so he can be pleased. I'm just doing it because I at least respect the position. They weren't even doing that. They weren't giving God honor or respect. See, this idea of being father is this familial, the the being family part of this passage. See, God has loved them as a father. He is the head of the family of Israel. But not only that, he is the master. He is the one who's in charge. When we go back and we look at Scripture, we understand that that God is in charge from the very creation of the world. He's God. Why treat him even like an employer? We We need to treat him as the creator. The last part of this, and we're going to get into it. So if you want to, you've got a sheet to fill out and fill in some blanks. There's a third piece of this, and we're going to come back to it later. Because what you're going to see is that next one, you're going to see that repeated. And we'll come back to it because it'll make more sense as we read their response to who God is. Psalm 9, verse 19 and 20 says, Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. This is one of those getting back into perspective when um, yesterday um, Pastor, Pastor Isaiah was downstairs with the draft for Upward. Now, I'm pretty sure, I haven't talked to him in great detail about this, but if you are still willing to coach or would be open to coaching, he could use some more coaches. If you would like to serve in some other area and upward, that's an opportunity for you to do that. And so I would say, see him, okay? Um, or see somebody, see somebody on staff. Say, I'm willing to coach, but I don't know who to talk to. Find somebody on staff. We'll get you in touch with Pastor Isaiah and we'll get that squared away. Love to have you coach. But as he was getting ready for that yesterday and mingle and jingle was happening in North Campus with missions and, and different things happening and, and Becky, Becky sent me a text. I had like four texts before I left my driveway yesterday morning. And one of the texts came from Pastor Isaiah. And he said, hey, if you have a minute. I'm like, I don't have a minute. No. Um, could you check the projector? I don't think it's acting right. I'm like, oh, man, I didn't want to check the projector. But I came up here because I had to come up. I had to get a couple of things, stop through, and started messing with things. And first of all, we messed with, I messed with the cable. And so the, um, the whole draft thing came in in red only, background and all. It was awesome. So jiggled the cable a little bit more, and then it came through um, eventually. But, but what I realized is that he didn't have his display settings correct. And so it, it wasn't showing up where it needed to show up. And, and it, was, it was a setting that was off. It wasn't being displayed correctly. And when we worship God, when we, when we recognize him as father and master and creator, the Lord, we want things, our display settings to be right. 
We, want, we need to adjust those. Not for the sake of appearance, but because it comes from the inside. Verse 1, the second part of verse 6, or chapter 1, second part of verse 6 says, after he goes through and he says, Where is my honor? Where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? That word despise means to have contempt or to set as inferior, to, to be substandard. It goes back to the idea that we talked about last week that, God, you are not measuring up. Essentially, what they were doing is they were looking down on God as if that's even possible. And they were saying, God, you're not worth as much as we are worth. And so how, how in the world do you show contempt? When God asks something, you just don't do it. When, when something comes up in Scripture, you kind of roll your eyes and say, well, that's not for me. And we can, we can kind of get an idea of that if we think about contempt in terms of marriage, in a marriage relationship. I was looking through a, a resource, and, and I'm, I'm going to throw six things up there. I'm not going to go into a lot of explanation, but it's a, and you can kind of look at them and say, okay, yeah, I get that. Elements of relational contempt. It's this insufficient loving. And see, if, see how these things apply to how Israel and how the priests were treating God. Insufficient loving. You don't love us. Powering over. Toxicity. Dumping. Signifies rejection. We're just going to push you off. A break in fellowship. And it invites feelings of hopelessness. See, contempt is an indicator that a relationship is not right. That a relationship is skewed. It's, it's really outside the guardrails, if you will, of how a relationship ought to operate. And so I would say, if these things are a regular part of your marriage, then, then I would seek some help. Find a place, and it may be, you can say, oh, well, I'll take, some, I'll take some pastoral help, or I need to go to a counselor, and I need to go there because I need some professional help that I don't want to share with a pastor. Because I've been in situations where somebody will come in and they'll talk to a pastor, and now the pastor knows more about their, their personal life than they want the pastor to know, and then they don't feel comfortable in church because they feel like every illustration about anything related to that in church is about them. And to be honest, it's not. Just so you understand. If these things hit home, they don't hit home because I've planned them to hit home on you. Maybe you in general, but not you specifically. Had a girl in one of my churches that I would share on a Wednesday night, and she came up to me after Wednesday night was over, and she said, how did you know? I went, how did I know what? She said, how did you know I did this this past week? And I said, well, I didn't. So you just said that. I suppose that was God. And so when I, when, I, when I say seek a pastor for counseling in this, if you're having an issue, you can do that safely here in all confidence. But if you need to go outside the, the walls of the church to do that, seek a Christian counselor 
that abides in Christ and will share with you biblical principles. This is contempt in relationships can be just part of life. And when we understand it and it starts to affect our spiritual life as well, like these guys in their life with God, they were showing contempt for God and, and they were doing all these things that said, we don't trust you, God. We don't believe in you, God. We're not going down that road and following you. Our hearts are not with you. So they were showing contempt for God and Israel led by their priests were off track. And I'll tell you, as I read this, it just was one of those things where God, if because of my leadership position in this church, I needed to take a look at the inside of me before I could come here this morning and share this with you. Israel, led by their priests, were off track. The second thing is that God describes the offerings of Israel. Starting at verse 7, verse 7 and 8, this is how God describes it. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? And, and as I read this, and, and you may want to just read it like this, there's a little bit of sarcasm in there. This tone. Well, if it's good enough for me, shouldn't it be good enough for your governor? My understanding is you don't like your governor anyways. Would you offer it to him? Would he be pleased with you? Or would, would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? And when, when God asks this, this, this word defiled means to be polluted or stained. And that's what they were bringing to God. They were bringing leftovers to God. They were bringing things that, that they wouldn't give to anyone else. And they were saying, God is invisible. We can bring it to him. He won't care. He's full of mercy. And yet God calls them out on it. He says, you bring me things that aren't right. If we look at Leviticus, at the, the, the requirements of this, it's, it's really clear. Leviticus 22, verses 1 and 2 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel. So there's care that needs to be taken, which they dedicate to me so as not to profane my holy name. I am the Lord. God reminds them that what you bring to, to God ought to be the best thing that you can possibly bring because he is God. Leviticus 22, 19 and 20 says, For you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. And that's just part of Leviticus 22. I would encourage you to go back and look at that because that's just kind of this synopsis of what does God require? He requires the best. Why does he require the best? Because he is deserving of the best. He's deserving the best that we can offer. What he was saying is, you bring the things that are unblemished, that are pure, that are perfect. You bring those before me. That's where it starts. God's tied to the offering and the, 
and the good that comes through the worship to the relationship between himself and Israel is important. Malachi 1.9 says, But now you will not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. With such an offering on your part, will he receive you, receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. The governor is not going to give you good stuff for you bringing good stuff. Do you think bringing something that is substandard to God is going to bring you a blessing? See, if our hearts are not quite right, if our hearts are not set on God, and I know that everybody in here, we've got work in that area to do. We can come before Him and honor Him and bring Him what we have and allow the grace of God to work in our lives. But we come to Him honestly before Him at the altar and say, God, here I am. Flaws and all, but I'm bringing everything that I have. Everything that I am. That last point earlier where I said that God is Father and He's Master. He's also Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies, of multitudes. It's about the might and the worthiness of God. It's a recognition of not only the people's understanding of who God is, but it's a a recognition of God so that those outside the family of God will recognize who God is. Third thing, God determines what is appropriate from Israel. Malachi 1.10 says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I attempt and, or accept an offering from you. I got down to that and I went, why in the world would you want to sh- shut the gates? Why would you want to close the temple off from the people? Well, what if you showed up on Sunday morning and the doors of this church were locked all the way around? What would you do? What would you do? I I think first thing would be, who is responsible for unlocking the doors? And then then there'd be a group of you that would try and figure that out and call a group of people to come unlock the church doors. But what if it were shut because what took place inside the walls of the church were not appropriate? What if they were shut because There was an offering taking place on the inside that was not honoring to God. And therefore, shutting the doors was a way to keep people from doing what was not pleasing to God. That's the picture here. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 19 says this, It came about that just as it at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors should be shut and they should not open them till after the Sabbath. Nehemiah understood that what you were doing in there was not appropriate. And I would say that if we shut the doors, we'd have to question that. 
I don't, want, I don't ever really want the doors to the church to be shut because we're not doing what honors God. I think there are places that it happens that God shuts the door. But here Nehemiah or Malachi is calling out the priest for not shutting the door. Oh, that somebody would shut the door and not kindle fire on my altar. Their worship wasn't pleasing to God. Instead, it was deceptive. So the fourth thing, God deception will not be tolerated. And it's not God deceiving, it's us trying to deceive God by putting on choir robes and doing the things that outwardly look good, but God's saying, it ain't so good. Malachi 1, 11 through 14 says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruits, its food, food is to be despised. For also say, you also say how tiresome it is. That you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what was lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who's made, who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations." Look what it says in this passage. Verse 13. How tiresome it is. How antsy do you get about noon in here? Just checking. It's hard, isn't it? We look at it and, and, and it's even hard sometimes to get out of bed on Sunday morning, is it not? Do you find that it's harder to get out of bed to come to church than it is to get up and go to work? I'd say there are times when it's kind of like that. Tiresome means to be, have hardship or distress or weariness. We have to ask the question, has it ever been tiresome or weary, weary, have weariness attached to it just coming to church and attending church? God merits a credible offering. God merits a credible offering. So what's credible to God? What summons His grace? What, what, what is the call of God on us? The call of God on us is to abandon self, is it not? It's to abandon self and to follow Him. We consider Mary... If we read her story, we understand that she was a sister to Martha. And, and the, the first reading about her is, is one where she's down there at the feet of Jesus, putting ointment on his feet and wiping it with her hair. We run across her in other places where she's called to come and serve along with her sister. And Jesus says, let her alone. She's doing what she's supposed to do. She's recognizing me for who I am. See, it wasn't even the position of the person. It was the 
posture of her heart that Jesus recognized. And so what are we to do? Malachi 2, 1 through 5 gives us an indication and starts out with this idea of choice. We're given a choice. It says, and now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. So what, did, what is Malachi seeing in this? First of all, it's, it kind of looks like he's given them a choice, isn't it? Say, if, if you will kind of turn your heart toward me and quit being deceptive in your worship, then, then I will bless you. But then Malachi goes just a little bit further. He says, well, wait a minute. God says that your offering has already been cursed. God sees our heart. And I think what he saw in the priest at this point is he saw priests that were going, yeah, I know God, but I'm going to be just like this. You've been, you may have been part of churches where you had the, the group of folks in the church that sat like that and went, just bless me. Go ahead, see if you can do it. Or the ones in church that if you brought up a good idea, like, hey, let's reach a whole bunch of people. And let's, let's get them here so they can learn about God. And let's see if some of them will get saved. And we can, we can have this, this party atmosphere. And when I say party atmosphere, party atmosphere like party in heaven kind of atmosphere. Let's do that. and Let's reach people. And they go, no, we like our church the way it is. You ever heard of those churches? was more important about maintaining the comfort level than it was reaching the community around them? They exist, by the way. That's the kind of attitude that I think Malachi is calling out as God's leading him to share is, is this idea of you're not going to do it, so I've cursed you already. I know where your hearts are. And they're really not going to change, even though we talk about the defiling offering that you bring to the table. Then he goes on to say, Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuge on your refuse on your faces and refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Now that doesn't create a picture that some of you might have to explain to some of your youngins. It's not a good picture. And we look at that and we go, oh, that's, that's pretty bad. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you and my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Yeah, that, that whole picture is, is not necessarily about the physical spreading refuse on a face. It's about the humility that comes with that. God will not be put in a place where you pridefully, pridefully push your agenda on Him. Well, God is saying, you can try that all you want, but it's going to be brought down under the mighty hand of the Lord of hosts. And I will show you what humility looks like. So 
says in verse 5, my covenant is with him, talking about Levi, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. And for us today, we have a choice. Uh, We can look at these priests and how they were crossing their arms in their heart and, and saying, no, God, this is not for me. But we have a choice. We can take what Malachi wrote as a burden to the people and a burden to the priest and change the way we do things. We have a choice. We can grasp the covenant of Levi. You say, what what was that? Well, it was stewardship of the sanctuary. They were in charge of the, the, the Levitical priests were in charge of the sanctuary. And they were also in charge of the sacrifice within the sanctuary. So that covenant, they had specific things that they were to do. Malachi 2.6 says, True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. So not just the covenant of Levi, Levi, but look, grasp the character of Levi. The true instruction that he honored God, that he was in fellowship with God, he was in a vibrant fellowship with Him, and he was a witness of God's mercy and grace. He was one that would share what it means to trust God. And so we can grasp the objective of leadership. Malachi 2.7, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And I would say, yeah, that applies to me. But I would say that if you are a teacher, a teacher in a small group, that applies to you. If you're one of our deacons, that applies to you. If you work in any area of leadership, it applies to you as well. You should preserve knowledge. And that, and that would be being true to Scripture. Preserve knowledge and proclaim truth. Proclaiming truth means that you are unwavering in sharing what that Scripture says. And in the culture in which we live, sometimes that's a little more difficult because we have people saying that's not true. And we have to stand up and say, it is. God's Word says. God says. Malachi 2.8.9 But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have cursed many to stumble by the instruction. And you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality and instruction. What the priests were doing is saying that it's okay for this group of people to get away with this, but it's not okay for this group to get away with this. And they were saying, as they were sharing what God's requirements were, they were making the requirements different for different groups of people. You see, the requirement of salvation extends to all of us. Just as the penalty for sin applies to all of us, regardless of our social standing or our position in in government or anything else, it is the same. 
Therefore, the instruction is the same. There's no piece of Scripture that applies just to one group of people. All of this applies to all of us. And we have to come to, to realize that by living that out, by understanding who God is, that it kind of keeps our hearts in check. And so we go back to the question, what is the condition of your heart? And so what should we do? I want to give you three things very quickly. Three things that we should do. The first one is guard the integrity of, of Scripture. Guard the integrity of Scripture. The second one is honor the Lord with authentic worship. God is not pleased when our worship is not authentic. So we bring our hearts to the altar, not just our heads. Third thing is to celebrate His goodness, mercy, and grace. Let's go back for just a second. You remember the beginning when we talked about what God provides as the loving Father? Listen to this list. He calls us His children. He chose us. He protects us. He attends us. And He redeems us. It's all the things He did for Israel. He does that for us. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 following says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's pretty good in and of itself, right there. But he goes on, Peter goes on to say, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through the faith through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you've been distressed by various trials God chose us and he has done all those things for us why would our hearts not reveal a heart of worship? This altar will be open in just a moment. And when I read this passage from, from Malachi and, and look through it, I ask the question like you ought to be asking the question, where, where am I? What is the condition of my heart? And it may cause us to come here. But don't come here because it's just the thing to do. You come here because the heart is ready to come here. And allow God to be boss. That's what Malachi is calling us to. That's what God is calling us to. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service.